When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome to the Sound Logic Podcast. What album are we listening to today, Asher? Today, we're listening to Neverbind by Nirvana. And when you get three guys born in the 80s talking about this album, they tend to get a little long winded. So, we decided to break this episode into two parts. What? <laughs> it's true. I think we made the right call. Are you going to stay here with us? Bye. All right, give my ice cream back. Bye. That's enough of that. He's going to steal my job. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Today we are discussing album number 17 on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time. That happens to be Nevermind by Nirvana. We're so excited to have a special guest with us today, our good friend Rob Jones. Rob, thanks for joining us. No problem. Excited. Long-time listener, first-time contributor. <laughs> uh, Rob is a, was a very old friend of mine. We've been friends since probably before high school. I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> long-time friend. And uh, this is unique for me because uh, Rob and Ben are two-thirds of my uh, groom's party groomsman party what do you call that yeah something groomsman. like that. um so we'll there's one more and we'll have steve on at another time but uh it's great to have you guys here you're both uh, really good friends of mine and uh rob we know that you're really excited about this album it's one you grew up with so we're looking yeah, forward well, to what I you have to say uh, about it. it's a unique album and i don't want to tip my hand too much but it's uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's unique for a bunch of different reasons so it was one of the first ones that when I read through that top 500 list, and yeah. it, it sort of jumped out in that first 25 of, of something that was very unlike the others. So, hmm. yeah, I was excited by that that possibility. And I knew there's a, a few things to talk about. Well, before we dive in too deep, um, t- tell us a little bit more about yourself, Rob. How do you describe yourself to people who might inquire? And um, get, maybe give us a little snapshot on your musical background, uh, that, that journey of experience. Well, I like, uh, probably like a little bit like Mike, um, I've always had an interest in music. Um, guitar was probably the only thing that I would ever fashion myself as being able to um, somewhat play. Um, played in a couple little, very unsuccessful bands myself, but I uh, just, just always had an appreciation for the diversity of music for, across genres. Um, musically as well, I, I would say probably similar to yourselves, rock was probably uh, the one genre that, that has sort of stuck with me the longest. Um, however, that being said as well, I'll, I'll often find myself flipping around radio stations and um, jazz, I was on a huge jazz kick for, for a good chunk of time um, <laughs> recently. 
I don't really know what it is about pickup trucks and country music, but I got myself a pickup truck about <laughs> two years ago, and with my, with my, uh, apparently when you spend fifty thousand dollars on a new vehicle, they give you six months of serious radio with it as a freebie. <laughs> so I, uh, I tuned into one of those stations and got hooked onto to country. So um, musically, I think I, I'm fairly diverse in my taste. Um, but I, I think I'm always going to have a pretty good soft spot for, for that genre in particular. Country music. I'm about to just uh, pull yeah, the plug on this whole interview and start over. <laughs> <laughs> according to according to Rolling Stone magazine, there there is no great country album. Yeah, I, I see that. And I'm okay with that, to be honest. It's, uh, you want to think about, sing about girls, pickup trucks, dogs, and drinking, then then I guess country's your thing. But right. if you want to go a bit deeper than that, you got to look through a different genre. Would there be anything close? <laughs> Do we right. got anything like by yeah. the Eagles or? Well, I, th- I think the closest maybe like. Uh, yeah, Dylan, I guess sometimes gets a little bit. Elvis. Elvis, Dylan. Um, some of the older kind of. CCR. Rock country blues stuff. Oh, Johnny yeah. Cash. I think Johnny Cash might be actually yeah. the closest Cash thing. probably. Uh, and I think Cash as well. If you're looking at greatest 500 albums, and I know we've had this debate, but it's not for the music. And let's let's call a spade. Like we can argue, wow. we can step. Well, it's for the storytelling. <laughs> Dylan, right? Dylan, the knock to Dylan is 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 he polished? No. Is he a musician? Question mark. Can he? <laughs> encapsulate you in his storytelling through music of course he can yeah, and because right. of yeah. that he's got a very vigilant loyal following just haven't met no. any of them yet no <laughs> except for chris <laughs> good our good friend chris uh yeah i see i see on this list hank williams oh, yeah. um you know so there That's are a few country. but it's there's nothing there's no modern country like no. you know no. one of the greatest american uh sorry, most successful in terms of album sales, uh, Garth Brooks, you know, he's nowhere to be seen on this list. You'd think that he'd at least have one. Um, what a huge career. And long before the first, like he started in like 1990 or 89, the first list was published in 2003. So it's not like, you know, he came too late. So anyways, um, uh, one question we would like to ask our guests, Rob, did you have any history with this 500 list uh, from before we started this podcast, either the first or the second version? Did you pick up a copy when it came out or read through it? When I was around the time that this came out, um, we were still in that point where, at least for me, my elementary school, we kept selling these um, magazine scription things as fundraisers for the school. Uh, really, it was probably closer to child labor than anything else, but the school got some money for it. So, I pitched to my parents that Rolling Stone magazine would be a good subscription for my Hmm. non-using loving parents (laughs) because they didn't know what it was. So they got a subscription to Rolling Stone at the time, and this just showed up in the mail one day. So I think, um, yeah, it was great. I I conned them into it. Dig around their basement and see if you can dig up a copy because Mike and I I still need to take a look. My parents are sort hoarders, so (laughs) I bet there's a copy of this in their basement somewhere. Oh, let's let's take a trip up the road, bud. Yeah, no, we were. My uh, <laughs> my dad, I think you know. My mom was in the military for a number of years, and when she was discharged, they I'm jumping all over the place here, but 
um, they discharged you with a set of your personal effects in boxes, but the box had were steel ammunition cases and you got to package all your stuff up on it and ship it to your home address. Um, so for the longest time, my parents in all of these ammunition cases in the basement just have tons of vinyl and it was just packed to the brim. And then at one point that, that vinyl made its way onto a shelf and, and uh, these magazines all ended up getting stored into these cases. So I'll have to have a dig around and see if I can still find them. Oh, uh, and hold on. Did you say vinyl? Vinyl. <laughs> like, we got to go dig through that, we man. We do, but I want to do a disclaimer is the vinyl is my parents' vinyl. So we're not <laughs> going to be finding um, something that might satisfy our musical tastes. You never know, man. Yeah. You never know. You never know what you're going to find. Yeah, she's quite a Motown fan, though. So there's going to be a bit of... Oh, some great stuff. (laughs) Maybe get our hands on some James Brown or something. Oh, yeah. Some urethra. (laughs) Yeah, we'll find it in there. Um, Oh, that's that's cool. That's... I got to be honest. I don't remember you ever telling me your mom was in the military. (laughs) Really? Yeah, she, I mean, you you may have at some point, and I just forgot, but I don't remember. Yeah. That. Well, that's that was her that was her ticket out of Saskatchewan. She she signed up for the military and went overseas and spent some time in Germany, just mid fifties. Oh wow! Uh, no, sorry, uh, mid sixties. Yeah, uh, that yeah, makes more sense. Spent some time over there, and then came on back and and worked as a nurse in Toronto. So, yeah. Wow. Yep. That's one way. Wow. That's one wow. way to get out of Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're getting some great history here. <laughs> really, less about the top 500 and more about the Jones family history right now. <laughs> That's okay. I'm all about that. <laughs> um, That's right. Okay, so let's talk about Nirvana. Um, and this, uh, oh, I want to say so many things, but I want to try and channel it into some sort of semblance of order. Um Okay, let's okay, let's start with this. Let's start with this. Um raise your hand if you've listened to this album before. <laughs> so everyone's got their hand raised. <laughs> um uh and I want to say that I said this about the Beatles and I'll say it about Nirvana. I I never owned this album, not a hard copy, and I don't know that I had listened to it front to back, but it was another one of those artists that I felt like I didn't need to buy any albums because they play the music so much on the radio and you're going to a friend's house and they might have it on. So probably at some point I had heard all the songs but never had intentionally put it on. But I only think that one or two of them really felt new. I felt like I knew them all and it was... Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was still a very good experience and exciting to listen to it again, but it wasn't a new experience. Uh, did you guys have, did you own copies of this album? I did not. I think I'm like you, Mike, my, uh, my listening would have been, uh, hanging around, hanging out with friends. I have some fairly clear memories. I think of the, uh, the playground, uh, in eighth grade, uh, a friend got, a CD boom box that took like, you know, eight D batteries or something. And, uh, and people would bring their <laughs> shoe boxes full of, uh, of CDs at the time. And, um, this was in there with stuff like stone temple pilots and Pearl jam and sound garden and, uh, smashing pumpkins oh, and man. all of those sort of grungy, uh, bands. Um, so I'm sure that I've listened to the whole thing before, uh, but, 
but never intentionally, never, never owned it. I don't think it's ever been an album I've pulled up on Spotify uh, until embarking on this this week's episode. So, Rob, you're a you're a guitar guy like Ben, um, and one thing that you guys have in common, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, your first guitars, both of you, were both electric guitars. Is that right? It was for me. Yeah, I had a, a blue Fender Stratocaster that uh, I still own to this day. Awesome. And Ben, I think your your first guitar was a white Strat. Right. Yeah, a knockoff uh, Squire. So it was um, a level below the American-made ones. But yeah, my dad has uh, several acoustic guitars. And so I played those uh, initially first while I was learning, you know, chords. But um, the first guitar I bought with my own money was an electric. Super cool. So, Rob, was this an album that you played along to, you know, when you were learning? Well, it it was for me, um, but once I got past um, G A D chord progressions over and over in mixed up orders, uh, I think I moved past playing along to this album. Um, musically, yep. it, it's 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 simplistic, and and we'll get to that. Um, I think it's done well, and that's not a knock to it. But I, I think intentionally that was. Part of the charm of this album is that that musically it wasn't incredibly complex and it wasn't difficult. Uh, it wasn't difficult to replicate or to play along with. So it was a it was a great catchy learn to play along album. Um, right. Yeah. If you were trying to learn new skills, new progressions, new techniques, you evolved out of this fairly, I evolved out of this fairly quickly as an incredibly unaccomplished guitarist. Right. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. Um, no, absolutely. I, I mean, the bass chords are, a lot of the sounds that Co Cobain is making are a little different and, and you can't do without, you know, some effects, but the, the chords are pretty easy. Um, I think that when you first pick up an electric guitar, especially in the 90s, after you learn to play the riff for Smoke on the Water, you're probably learning to play the riff for uh, Come As You Are. And then yep. the riff of Teen Spirit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What After single notes, now you move into power, uh, chord into power chords, yeah. right? So, uh, so these are like, yeah, I think we've said many times uh, an album – or music in general doesn't have to be complicated to be yeah. really good. And this is, I think this is one of the things that made this so accessible. Um, I want to debate uh, that later on, but uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. We'll table that. <laughs> but ab I absolutely um, re resonate with that. Uh, I didn't own this album, but I knew enough uh, to know that, um, 102.1 The Edge would probably play some songs after school from this yep. album and I could plug in my guitar and, uh, you know, mess around on the fretboard until I figured out what power chord was the starting one and, and go from there. Before you heard it for the first time, do you remember what you thought it would sound like? Ooh. And I know this is reaching back for us, but I, I want to dig a little deeper on this album because this is the first album that came out in our lifetime on this list. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first album that we actually 
could have experienced when it was released. I mean, we were a little young, but but we do remember when when they were in their prime. So yeah. I think that makes it very special. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys have any memories of what you know what you thought the first time you heard it, or what you thought Nirvana would be like? I don't know how this happens, um, but I think in the same way that I knew without a shadow of a doubt that a Ouija board was evil and Dungeons and Dragons were something not to do. <laughs> Nirvana was this, this thing out there that I knew nothing about except that it was uh, something good Christians oh. didn't touch. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't know where that got built in. I, I don't think my parents ever said, don't listen to Nirvana. I don't think it was ever preached at church. Um, so, so I have no idea where that comes from, but Nirvana, I think in my mind, before I'd even heard them, I thought of them as being dangerous. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and something that was outside of something that a good kid would do and, uh, and, and a little bit outside of the box. Um, I was trying to remember, uh, the timeline you know, in 1991, uh, Rob, were you, were you also an 82 birthday? Yeah. Yep. So we were only nine years old. Um, I'm not sure that I would have been aware of this album when it came out. Uh, in yeah. fact, I think our peak Nirvana, uh, experience was probably around the time of Cobain's death. Yep. And so it may be that, you know, there's this tragic story of a guy, um, uh, losing his life to suicide and it may have been that it may have been that sort of like that darkness that was associated with this band. So that even though I didn't really know their music, I knew that, you know, they were in some dark web of something yeah. that resulted in someone dying. Yeah. Uh, you knew their tragedy. So there was a tragedy associated with it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's my hunch is that, you know, I, I thought this was dangerous. I, I thought it was, you know, taboo. And probably a big part of that was the circumstance around um, Cobain's death and really their their prominent rise. Yeah. What about you guys? I think it's interesting in the fact that it, it, it's a question to ponder about what did you what did you foresee this album to be like and to hold and, and its impact. To ask that question now, reflecting on my thoughts is, as as Ben has mentioned as a nine year old. It's even if I may have been 15, 16, 17 when it came out, I don't think it's hard to peg your thoughts on what it's going to be because really the the infamy behind this album is really held from the fact that the genre that it really opened and the accessibility um, to really alternative rock uh, coming into a wider audience. So, I, I mean, the only album before this from nirvana is bleach and if you if you would have asked anyone in 1989 or sorry in 89 would you feel of bleach or did it come in 90 uh i think you're right with 89 yeah so so when that album came out well what do you think of bleach i I don't think it would have really been on the radars of many many mainstream music fans it wasn't until kind of 94 95 at the, at the peak of Nirvana's um, impact and Cobain's death, people were reaching back into the early kind of discography. Um, and I mean, this album was sort of revolutionary. This this broke them through. 
Yes. So, but I, I don't think if you would have asked me, even as an informed music lover that was not nine years old, I don't think I would have really had this album or had any expectations for it. I think the the word that you mentioned, Ben, is the one that I was thinking of was dangerous. It felt like mm. I saw, I, and the cover too. I saw the cover <laughs> when I was really young and I was like, ooh, that's okay. That's strange. Um, am I, is that supposed to yeah. be out in the open? <laughs> like, are we supposed to be able to just see that? Columbia house um, gets delivered to our door. How can they put that in there? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Columbia house. I remember Columbia. House. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the little stickers, uh, you know, and I too remember, you know, sitting with some of the older kids at youth group who had it. And I think that, me personally, but probably all of us, I think I was about two or three years too young that if a few years older and probably would have been right into it. Cause I think about when I got some of my first CDs, it was probably two or three years later Yeah, um, that I think I would have, I, I do remember hearing it. And when I heard songs like smells like teen spirit, then it was kind of like, Oh, that's, that sounds kind of good. It still felt, it felt very dark, especially I remember uh, one of my friends, I think Ben, Josh Maynard, I think he had in utero when it came out. Okay. And even just looking at the cover, I remember him having it in his room, looking at the cover and maybe hearing some songs was like, it just felt very mature, very dark, a little scary. Um, you know, from, from a, 11 12 year olds perspective or maybe even younger 10 year old i think that one came out in 92 um it's like it just still felt a little old yep for me at the time yeah so i think if if we had been born maybe three to five years earlier and as a lot of our peers uh who were like really like i have peers who are maybe two years older who like live and breathe pearl jam i grew up with that and i'd like feel like i just missed it yeah I would think uh, Unplugged in New York might be the one that that yep. I feel more of a tie to, like it was a part of my uh, musical awareness. Um, that was 94, uh, a few it, years yeah. after this. It's also important to note, though, that of that Unplugged in New York album, and I, I, I had both of these albums, gut feeling without reading back through the track list, I bet you half of those songs – are off of this album. Yeah. Well, they only Whoa, have. Now I have to look at yeah, that. Fact <laughs> me. But I'm, because I, I, CDs didn't wear out the same way cassettes did. But when I'm, when I'm listening to this album in my mind without physically listening to it, I'm hearing the acoustic versions of half of these songs. Mm. And it's obviously mm. from Live in New York. Like, Come as you are. All I can think of is is a, just cheering as he starts the riffs up because that was that was the al- that was on the album. Yeah. One, two, three, four. <laughs> it's fact checking. Yeah. Five. <laughs> uh, five. Five, five of four. Five of fourteen. So I remembered there was fourteen tracks. But about about a third, and important to note, they don't do "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Well, that that doesn't quite come across the same on an acoustic. I, no. I'm with you. And they went I'm with a you. bit more obscure, right? It was quiet. It was a quieter set. Yeah. It wasn't all their hits. 
Yeah, and and even the songs they did off Nevermind are not kind of the standout, you know, in your face songs like Polly on a plane, something in the way. Yeah. Those are those are different. And and Unplugged comes out after his death, so I I mean, it sounds horrible to say this, but I think his death elevated the band to uh, pop culture awareness level. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened had uh, had it not occurred, um, and I think made you know uh, April '94 he died. I think it made it like playground talk for us, even though we were 12 years yeah. old. Um, in a way that I don't think we were talking about uh, Eddie Vedder, any of the other sort of grunge lead, no. lead singers. Um, yeah. I remember hearing, um, I had a, in public school, I, at the time I had a paper route and I had a, I had a Walkman. So I listened to usually not a tape. I usually listened to the radio and it was always the edge. Um, and I remember when they talked about, I remember two things. I remember, uh, Navid by Our Lady Peace coming out and them playing that a lot. And then I hear them, I remember them saying that the guy from Nirvana died and I still didn't really know who he, like I knew who they were, but it didn't really follow him. Especially not like you can follow things now. You had to be very intentional. Like you had to go buy magazines or tune into a TV show at a very specific time to watch something. My kids don't understand that. <laughs> right. Because you can look up whatever you want, anytime you want. They're even younger and they know all about their, their pop culture icons. And the people they want to know about, they just look it up. Yeah. You, you couldn't just do that uh, before the internet. And I think that, I mean, our generation and generations before us know that, but they don't now. So I remember hearing on my paper route that Kurt Cobain died, even though I didn't really know who he was other than Nirvana. So, yeah, interesting. We ready for some details? Details. Details. Okay, so details. Before we start, um, I mentioned earlier on the 500 list, this is the first album from the 90s, and it's the first album uh, that's more recent than 1978. I think at number eight we had uh, The Clash is London Calling, and there's been no album since then more recent than that so we totally <laughs> skipped the 80s and we've jumped right into we've jumped right into the 90s which i think is is very significant for a list that's very steeped in the 60s and the the folk rock and pop rock that comes out of the 60s and kind of the things that evolved from that we jump right ahead to something totally different which i think really speaks to uh the influence of this album so we will see that in some of these details and okay. why that is I think it's also interesting that um, this is the only album that's come out since our birth. <laughs> I think so you already far, re yep. referenced that. <clears throat> and yep, yep. Uh, it takes a few more until we get to another one, right? Uh, Thriller is the only other one in the top 20 that would have come out since we were born. When did that come out? 82? Uh, it's, I think mean, I want to say 77. Maybe it predates. It, well, it predates me. <laughs> Okay. I'm a, no, it came out in 82. 
82. So before before I was born. But probably before both of us November were born. November 30th, 1982. Wow. Uh, I was alive. Oh, so you were, you were alive, but I was not. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were alive. Um, it was a good yeah, year. So, yeah, that was a great year. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... So those albums aren't really represented at all until later on in this list, you know, some of the more recent ones. Um, but this one obviously has had a lot of influence. Uh, okay, so this this album was released on September 24th, 91, and they had been recording it off and on for over a year. Um, so... It's kind well, of the like Bleach wasn't huge. Like Bleach, as you, I agree with you, Rob. Bleach was not a successful album, at least not not before his death or before Nevermind. It, it wasn't very successful. Uh, it wasn't till Nevermind, and I think sometimes you see that with a band that kind of takes a long time to figure out what's going to be on the album and polish it. So they recorded this for a while, and this was their second studio album. The whole thing was written by Kurt Cobain. Uh, the other guys get a credit on smells like teen spirit. And I think there's one other co-writer, but most of it's all Kurt Cobain. Uh, it charted very well. It went to number one in the U S and number seven in the UK. Uh, and I, I added up kind of the certifications, but Wikipedia says that it's sold at least 30 million copies to date. Um, and in the U S it's done 10.6 million. So this is so far on our list. If this data is correct, this is the <laughs> most successful album that we've discussed so far in terms of sales. Uh, because uh, Sergeant Pepper's the number we found was nineteen. Mm. So this is a very successful album. Uh, also important to note, this is the first album featuring Mr. Dave Grohl on drums. He was not on Bleach. Hmm. <laughs> No, what? And I think that uh, I, you know what, listening, we won't get in. That's why I didn't do well. It's Dave Grohl's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, listening to this album again, I don't remember before really listening to the drums, but listening to it again, like they're, they're yeah. pretty good. <laughs> like it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's decent. Yeah. Um, I kind of rushed through that because I know we all really want to talk about this artwork. Um, <laughs> Does anybody other than me want to describe this? Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll do it. Okay, so if again, if you're living under a rock and you've never seen this image, it's uh it's mostly blue. It, we're underwater in what looks like a pool, and there's a, a a young child, probably a baby, less than a year old. He's almost got a starfish going. He's swimming towards a one dollar American bill. Um, which is on a fish hook. Uh, the bottom half of the album is a dark blue. The top half is a little lighter because we can see the surface. He's almost smiling. There's a bit of the sunlight on him. And of course, most prominently, we can, we can see a little bit of his tiny <laughs> penis at the back. Um, We're on and, display for the world to see. Yes. So that um, my son uh, looked at my computer uh, earlier today as I was preparing notes and and uh, uh, had a few different reactions. <laughs> First, he said, whoa, and then he laughed. Um, and he's like, what is that? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I was like, uh, well, that's, uh, that's the album artwork. That's just what's there. Um, and then at the bottom, it says Nirvana in their, I think, which would be their common band font. I don't know what font oh, yeah. that is. Kind of very narrow block capitals underlined. And underneath it says, never mind. And all I can say is the font is like uh, underwater font, like yeah, like it's Jaws. kind of rippling. It's like, rippling. It's it's very. Yeah. That is probably the most dated thing about the design here. Is that kind of text is very uh, juvenile, I find. But other than that, so that so this is this is the Nevermind album cover in probably more detail than anyone's ever put in describing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on now. You can look at a Time Magazine article uh, in which they interview. The baby, who's now like almost thirty. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> his his name is uh, Spencer Eldon. Spencer Eldon. Uh, yeah. And there's a number of articles around the interwebs of uh, this baby. He's even posed in pools, trying to recreate <laughs> the uh, the same image in so. similar attire. Yeah. Uh, I, no, always with shorts on. At least the Google yeah. images I can see. Um. Apparently his family got two hundred bucks. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. they signed a, uh, uh, a a clause that said this is going to be your daily rate and payment. No rights and residuals for for release of the photograph. And he walked it with two hundred dollars cash. While I'm sure his parents did. And uh, that was the end of yeah. that. There was apparently a stock image that the record company found that they liked, but it was going to cost them like something like ten grand in residuals yeah. every year. Uh, to use this stock image yeah. on an album cover. And it's like, now let's go to a pool and yeah. film something. And apparently this, uh, the backstory even before that is Kurt Cobain wanted to have sort of creative right over over the image as well. So he thought it was going to be he'd, – he'd read stories about um, kind of natural birthing methods and, and understood that many babies were, were born – in, in pools and in hot tubs and in other sort of water delivery methods. And he thought that that would be uh, a great album cover of a, of a baby being born in water. Um, so when he started scouring through stock images that had been taken, they were all, it, we think this image is graphic. They were taken to the next level. So the, <laughs> the compromise was, okay, well, why don't we, um, sort of have a baby in a pool swimming towards a dollar bill, and we'll make that we'll make that the album cover, which is a metaphor, by the way. You, you guys are aware of the metaphor of the dollar bill? Uh, no, I, I have I have guesses about it, but I mean beyond the rat race, and uh, I, I assumed it was you know kind of American greed uh, that we're born, you know, especially with Cobain saying this is like birth, we're we're born into greed and striving for the the all-powerful all-powerful dollar okay ben yeah you were born into this capitalism chasing a dollar before you even are aware of it well i think at least one of the things that i had read is that that why apparently kurt cobain had sort of agreed to that as an image on the cover was he saw that as a metaphor for Nirvana's place in musical history. Nirvana, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a later part, but they were they were heavily influenced by a genre of music that was a little bit edgier and harder 
And Cobain sort of softened that a little bit and made it a little bit melodic um, and patchy, yet a lot of the imagery and, and dark themes still being present. So he saw the the baby chasing the dollar bill as the alternative rock band trying to push and chase and become successful um, with something that was continually evolving and moving away from them being mainstream music and acceptance. And, uh, oh. Maybe there's no fact at all behind that story, but that, that was one of the ones that I had sort of read. I think it makes sense. I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's go with it. Um, uh, there was concern about um, the boy's penis being visible and uh, – Geffen wanted to to do an alternate cover without it uh, because they thought it would offend people. But Cobain, who was the creative behind it, said he would own his only compromise he would make was that adding a sticker to the cover <laughs> that would say, "If you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile." <laughs> <laughs> wow! So. Um, I- I was trying to remember if like, you know, if you'd go to Future Shop or something like that, I seem to remember them strategically putting the price sticker in that general region, but maybe I'm just making that up. Yeah, I I don't know. I I would not shock me at different stores if they did that. It still does, you know, whatever it's been, 27 years later, it still does feel like, wow. This was something, you know, you know, thinking about it coming on uh, the Columbia House flyer in the mail <laughs> does seem a little surprising that, uh, yeah. There was, um, so the, the art, sorry, not the artist, the photographer um, was a guy named, oh shoot, what was his name? Kirk Weddle, I think. Yeah. He, he actually had four, um, four month olds. Uh, Spencer Eldon was one of which. And he had said, well, basically how this was going to work is you're going to float the dollar bill and then someone on the pool deck, they rented an entire Olympic-sized pool for the photo shoot. He set up an entire studio underwater uh, with his underwater cameras and uh, he had a radio under there somehow. I don't know how that works. And he'd radio up to the deck and say, okay, throw the baby in now. And they would <laughs> these kids into the pool. And uh, they'd start pulling the uh, the dollar bills away from them. And uh, That's this, funny. this image that ended up on the co- on the cover uh, was about the only one they could find with the kid who had their arms outstretched and their eyes actually open. So it made the cut. That's awesome! Wow, that's great. Yeah, hopefully they had a life right there too. <laughs> there's got to be there's got to be people like just outside of the frame, you know, ready oh. to lift him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think about though, how many like advocacy groups uh, groups today would you oh. have on red alert if you started yeah. releasing artwork like this? Like, oh, the the trolls would have a heyday. Oh, yeah, they would. I love everything about this album. It's so so much there. <laughs> um, I do want to say that there's twelve tracks, but. In later years, when they pressed the album, they created a 13th track, which was the secret track, um, Endless, Nameless. But it used to be that you had to wait 
there was like 10 minutes of silence and then the secret track. Uh, but then they made it another track in some of the later pressings of it. But I, I think as well, like of those 13 tracks, you might like lounge act and stay away might be in the secret track might be kind of the only two or three that don't aren't widely known and kind of in your face like everything else is it's right there until i really started listening to this more i often forget the name of the song lithium even though i like i know it very well yeah. but i just forget what it's called <laughs> So even that, I was looking through the tracks, like, do I know that song? It played it. Oh, I definitely know this song, you know. Um, okay, well, let's, we often do it this way. Rob, give us a couple, give us a few of your favorites. Uh, you know what? Okay, you go to put this album on, and you've listened to it many times. What's, what are the tracks that you want to repeat right away? Well, if, if I could only pick three or four, and I, I'm making my, uh, 14 year old version <laughs> of a mixtape i'd i'd have to throw smells like teen spirit on there uh it's it's probably the single largest s- single from this album rob i'm gonna stop you before you tell us your your songs we should probably just talk about that song okay when i listen to this song here's what i've been thinking about lately what what came out before smells like teen spirit that sounded anything like this where does this come from because to me this is everything that 90s grunge and alt rock was this is like the number one and when i think about i I think for the last 20 years when this song comes on the radio i'm jacked like i am just (laughs) i turn it up every time there's something about the punchiness of the power chords when he starts it's not full distortion it's uh it's like clean it's what kind of what kind of tone is that rob on the guitar it's not well it's 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 not it's a mix of reverb and overdrive but it's not right full distortion it's not it's not a crunch sound it's it's just a little bit overdrive right um and it's not like in the in the verse and chorus when he does have the full crunch overdrive on um it it just like it just smacks me in the face every time And I'm trying to figure out, like, where did it come from? Where did this sound come from? Was it some of the kind of lesser-known punk acts in the in the 90s? Sometimes I listen to it, the album, and I hear a bit of maybe, like, some of the metal, like Metallica. Um, do you guys know about that? Like, where, where did he get it from? Because it's so... Or was it just brand new? Something in the water in Seattle. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was building off of something. Uh, it is, yeah. And there's something about this. So, in a vacuum, this song is power chords and a somewhat whiny, depressing vocalist. Uh, but it becomes big enough to like not just be big on the rock charts, but to like be played at school dances and like have a weird Al cover of it. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, like it's, it is an enormous, enormous song, 
that I think if it came out today, no one would even notice it. Well, uh, but there was something in the way that it transformed what music could be. Um, you know, I, I, like you said, uh, you count you, this song gets you fired up, Mike. It immediately makes me think about people headbanging. Yes, and I don't really remember that being a thing before. You know, this sort of scene exploded like it did. Um, there's this attitude to the song that I think is a part of its success. Uh, kind of like it's one giant middle finger. It's like a, I don't know, F you to the machine that's controlling our lives. And, and, the, and they've, they've taken that attitude and have tr- put it into the music as well. I think you're, you were onto something earlier, Mike, when you talked about Dave Grohl. I think his drumming, uh, well, I, he's already—he's known as a great drummer, but his drumming on this album, I think, is what bumps it from kind of angry kids in their garage playing power chords to like an exceptional album that ends up on the greatest albums of all time. Um, and that—that that drumming is right through this this iconic track. I think as well, though, it—it's hard for us to to answer the question of where does it come from because. In reality, it, it's the same thing as cooking. You take a thousand different ingredients, you put it in a pot, you mix it up, and this is what you get. And some of your product of what you cook is fantastic, like if Nora makes it. But if I cook it, it's garbo. So <laughs> Cobain talks about his his musical influences, and when you look through them, and he, like his, I think the four in particular that he credits as being um, incredibly impactful upon his musical development and taste and style. He talks about uh, two bands that are a little bit, I don't want to call them obscure because they were definitely revolutionary, but not nearly as popular. Um, Those two are the Pixies and the Smithereens. And they are uh, heavy alternative rock without i'm gonna say without a lot of substance um but that same anger um and driving freight train of a beat is found in their music but then he looks one of his other huge musical credits is rem and that's sort of that poppy storytelling so he's taking those two genres and mashing them together which is i think where you potentially see you talk about that introduction to Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it's the not heavily distorted with a bit of reverb, and then it, it he hits the switch, and it's just the kids, yeah. the boys at the grade 7, 8 dance coming off the wall and mosh pit headbanging in the center of the gym. And, and <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Tracks and, and we all, because I was one of those kids, goes back to the wall. Yep. I I can see that very vividly. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I I can't help but wonder how different this reaction will be for future generations or for, for generations who came before us. Um, I wonder if my kids will listen to Nirvana in a similar way that we listened to Velvet Underground a few weeks ago. Um, It was transformative for us because we lived it and it's just become part of the fabric of music history. Now it doesn't, I don't know, perhaps it doesn't sound terribly revolutionary to 
younger people uh, because it is fairly simple when you strip it down and you don't know that there was nothing like that until this came out. But I, I think there's also something to be said. We talk about our place in music history and, and the timing of this album, but it's funny to think about even as 10, 11, 12 year olds, a couple years after this album were to come out and we describe the school dance theme that I'm sure our teachers dreaded every second of, this was one song that when it came on, everybody, regardless of musical taste, they knew this song, they knew those riffs, they knew that all you had to do was run to the middle and jump around and pretend to be angry with two fingers in the air and you bang your head till you get a headache. And it, <laughs> it really did. That, didn't, that wasn't a thing until that point in time. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it, it had an instant impact on shaping yep. where alt-rock kind of evolved from. But without the context, I think it, it, it has the potential to be lost. True. Uh, if you didn't live it. Well, I still think, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that, but I still think there's a great accessibility to this song that it's not overly complicated and it's, it sounds that we could not necessarily like, we can't all scream and sing like that on the chorus, but we can all kind of access it easily. And maybe, maybe it is just because we grew up with it, Ben. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 isn't it hard to separate that? Yeah, absolutely. As as I was, it was so hard for me to like, I've, I've had a, we've had a few people. We even had a friend recently, Ben, a, a former guest of the show, um, who couldn't understand that we, didn't get Bob Dylan's Highway 61 revisited and what a, a monumental album it was and created the singer-songwriter era of the 60s. And and we tried. You and I, I think we valiantly tried to try and figure it out and appreciate it. And we just couldn't. We couldn't transport ourselves to that time. And maybe in the reverse way, we can't understand how anybody wouldn't get how great uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is yep. <laughs> because we can't separate it from that part of our lives, that part of our brain that it lives. Uh, but I still feel like it's accessible, but maybe, again, maybe that's just very subjective. Question for you guys. Um, have you have you let your kids listen to Nirvana or Smells Like Teen Spirit recently or at, at any time? Have they come in and caught you listening to it over the last few days? Yeah, I had it on this morning. Uh, our two youngest seemed very indifferent to it. Uh, oh, <laughs> it was not standing out to them. Uh, I've got a, a different. So I, I didn't go through the full track list. Um, well, I I did privately, but I was listening to a couple of them earlier. Uh, earlier this evening, I was I was kind of doing a bit of reading and had it playing in the background. Uh, it wasn't loud. And uh, and this song was on, and even though it's I think it's the first track that is it the first track that's on the actual album. Yeah. So I had it on shuffle. So they were flipping all over. And uh, my son was in his room. Yeah. Uh, kind of across yeah. from mine. And when it was playing, he's seven years old. He comes into my room and uh, he just looked at me and I looked at him. I was like, what's up? And he jumped onto my bed and just belly flopped onto me. And all he wanted to do to do was wrestle. <laughs> him, he'd never heard this song didn't know i was gonna have a conversation with you guys and was actually sort of analyzing it 
but it just made him want to fight. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have the context. So if you right. couple those two things together, it's, it really is quite raw. That just almost, uh, that innate animalistic, it just brings out that response, uh, we would call yeah. it just angry music, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, um, oh, that's funny. Rob, you have a, you have a 10 year old daughter. Did, did she listen to any of this? I'm curious about how the girls respond to it. Cause I have a story about that uh, as well. Yeah, she didn't. Uh, she was out all night. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll put the whole album on cause I've got it all on my phone. I'll put it all on when she's in the car with me and we'll, uh, It'll be interesting to see how she responds to it. Uh, my daughter Lily's about to turn eleven, and I I had it on for her. She was asking me about it, and we listened to a few tracks. And I asked her, you know, what do you th- do? You know who this is? Oh, I've heard of that Nirvana. Do you like it? Well, not really. <laughs> she was she was very polite. Uh, it's not my thing, Dad. I think she'd much prefer Taylor Swift and other stuff like that. Yeah. Now, my son, on the other hand, who's nine, I remember a few weeks ago, I was just kind of getting getting ready for bed, and I had the laptop out, and he came into the bed, and he said, "What are you listening to?" I said, uh, "It's Nirvana. I want to listen to it." Yeah, and I put on "Smells Like Teen Spirit" immediately. His eyes opened wide. He started looked at me, put his, you know, devil horns up with his hands, started bopping his head up and down, <laughs> head banging. He was like, what is this? This is awesome. <laughs> he was just totally into it. Um, and, and like, that's, you know, my kids, they like music, they're into music, but totally different responses oh, yeah. from, from one to the other. But from the, you know, the typical young boy, it was like, turn that up. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Yeah. So we should not, when the two of our sons are together, Rob, we should not put this song on because they will beat the <laughs> snot out of each it other. Might be fun. Maybe, maybe you can have a special podcast episode where you embed people of them just basically flying off the rails at each other, throwing haymakers. Uh, but it's funny, though, as oh, well, wow. because, I mean, the, the album is, like, lyrically very diverse. So, like, when you look, if you look at the lyrics to Smells Like Teen Spirit, they're fairly nonsensical and it, it doesn't, it doesn't paint too much of a picture really. Um, like the entire chorus is hello, 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 hello over and over and over. But it's just, it's the music that, that drives it. But when you flip that, that track to something like come as you are or in bloom or on a plane, if you just close your eyes and just listen to the words, you paint the picture in your mind. So it'd be interesting to see if musically this album was slightly different across different track lists. How, how would that response and the reception from someone like your oldest daughter, uh, how would that change? And I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, the you know, his lyrics are, some of them are a little cryptic. Uh, some of them are... It's kind of that creative poetry could have been, could have been a little uh, influenced by substance, different substance abuse at times. Maybe some yes, maybe some no. But um, 
I find a lot of this album, the, the lyrics are, they're very dark, but a lot of them have to do with, you know, different kind of domestic issues or kind of just that feeling, you know, a lot of the kind of post-punk and punk and alt rock that came out of the, uh, out of the eighties, you get a lot of really angry young people, like people who are really, really, you know, their, their parents came out of an age, you know, their parents were a little absent. They came out of a disillusioned middle America that was angry about a lot of things. And that's what they grew up in. They were just pissed off at the world. Their parents were leaving for them. And you get a lot of this, even though this is kind of, I think there's less of that coming into, especially the pop, not necessarily the alt rock in the nineties, but the pop in the nineties was a lot more sugar coated. And, uh, I think that, Kurt Cobain is kind of at the tail end of that generation, but he's really bringing it through to the next decade and just putting a lot of anger into lyrics that, yes, yeah, sometimes don't make a ton of sense, yeah. but you still have that feeling of like, I don't feel happy when I listen to smells like teen spirit. <laughs> I don't necessarily feel yeah. angry or mad, but I don't feel, I don't feel happy. I, I'm energized, but it's not um, sunshine and roses. Uh, okay, well, I'm glad we did that because <laughs> that was like half an hour on one song. <laughs> track two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think it's worth, I just think that track is worth exploring because I think that it kind of overshadows uh, yeah, a lot of the uh, the whole album, really. I mean, the, the album is great, don't get me wrong, but that song is just just bigger than all of it. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.